Alright, we're at Exodus chapter 25, verses 17 through 22. If you're physically able, will you stand with me right now as we read God's precious word out of respect and reverence for it. Exodus chapter 25, 17 through 22. The instructions God gives to Moses regarding the mercy seat. It says, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them at two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end, and the other cherub at the other end. And you shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat, with their wings, and they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. Well, what great words these are. And there I will meet with you. And I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. Thank you. you. may be seated. Thanks for standing. That's the word of the living God. As those of you who have been with us through this journey, or through part of it at least, you know that we've been going and looking at the teaching in the word of God regarding the, uh, the uh, tabernacle, the place of meeting that God gave his covenant people after delivering them for 430 years of Egyptian bondage. Moses goes up the top of Mount Sinai and God gives them the law, but he also gives them the instructions regarding the tabernacle. And we talked about time and again, he gave them the law because God's just and gave them the tabernacle because God's a savior. And at the same time, he foreknew their failures, he knew that they were not going to be able to obey the law. As Chad mentioned a few moments ago, the law was not given to obey, to endear ourselves to God and make us acceptable before him. Because that's impossible on our own. The law was given to expose us as sinners in need of a Savior which God provided. It is indeed a tutor, as the Bible says in Galatians, to lead us to Jesus. And so we approach it from that standpoint because that's the way the Bible approaches it. And we've been looking, and I just want to mention this this morning, but we've been looking at the tabernacle and the journey we've been going through. And the tabernacle has been from our place in. But from God's perspective, it's the other way around. We come to the last spot here to where the mercy seat is after we've gone through what is the seventh, this is the seventh piece of furniture in the tabernacle. And that's our journey. The, the first step would be to go through the way, the only way, which is through Jesus. And the brazen altar, which is a picture of the cross. And on it goes in our, in our life and our witness as we're conformed in the image of God's Son. And we go into further and further and further and deeper fellowship. But the initiative... And the whole plan was carried out the other way around. It was God who took the initiative. It was God who came down from heaven and met in the holy place, the most holy place with his covenant people. And it was his plan carried forward that ultimately led to the cross of his son. So we're going from our perspective, from God's perspective, it starts with the mercy seat. And thank God for the mercy seat. If there were no mercy seat in this tabernacle, there would be no covenant people. If there were no mercy seat in this tabernacle, you and I would not be. There would not be a church. There would, no, there would be no way of forgiveness. God made a way when there was no way. Praise His holy name. 
And there are four things that we're going to look at. Now, here's what we're going to do, God willing. I prayed about this and said, how do we approach this, Lord? What do we do? No one can do justice to this in 50 sermons or 500. But in these messages on the mercy seat, I believe the approach the Lord's laid on my heart is that we're going to look at it from uh, some several aspects of it today. And then next week, God willing, and please don't miss this if you, if you possibly can, we're going to look at the analogy between the mercy seat and what happened on the Day of Atonement and how it speaks of our redemption. And there's some verses in the New Testament, believe you me, that are going to come alive to you in a fresh way. They sure have to me through studying this. So much so that I lost sleep this week for good reason because I just tossed and turned in my bed. I could not go to sleep over being so excited about some of the things that God laid on my heart through studying this. It's been a glorious journey. But here we are at the mercy seat. And we talked about last two weeks ago, Last week we talked about the veil. We looked about what the scriptures say about the veil. The week before we looked at the, the Ark of the Covenant. And we speak of the Ark of the Covenant as if it's one piece, but it's actually two pieces. And inside the Ark of the Covenant, we went over the contents and we talked about the fact that were there no lid over that Ark? Were there no lid over that Ark and we were to look directly in there, we would just see the law. And what we would see is the curses that God laid out for having disobeyed it which all of us have. And we would incur nothing but judgment were there no lid on it. Praise God, there's a lid over the ark and it's called the mercy seat. Hallelujah. Amen. And there are four things that I want us to look at. And I've outlined them this way. We always got to do it with the same letter. Some of other pastors have to do that. I don't know why. But the first thing that we're going to look at is we're going to look at the sovereignty that we find at the mercy seat. We're going to look at the sequence of events that happen in the mercy seat. We're going to look at the satisfaction and we're going to look at the significance. So we're going to look at the sovereignty, the sequence, the satisfaction, and the significance that we find here. First of all, let's look at the sovereignty. Now we're going to have to get your Bible in tow because we're going to go to a bunch of different uh, scriptures here and I want you to journey with me if you will. We're going to look at the sovereignty here. This is a picture of none other than the throne of the living God. It's the throne of God. Now we see the picture of it here. Spencer's going to flash it up in, 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 for us. In the Holy of Holies, the lid over the covenant, over the Ark of the Covenant, is the mercy seat. And you see the two cherub there. They're facing one another and they're looking down on the mercy seat itself. It rests on the Ark of the Covenant. And let's just see what the Scriptures have to say about that. Because we've talked about it time and again. The reason we're studying the earthly tabernacle is to understand heavenly truth. This earthly tabernacle is a picture of the heavenly throne that exists eternity past, eternity present, and eternity future. So this is the very reason we're studying it. But look at the sovereignty here. I want you to look at Psalm 80. Look at Psalm 80. Psalm chapter 80. Or the 80th Psalm. And we're going to look at verse 1. You want to write these down and probably keep them as you go through and study this for yourself and teach it to your children. Psalm 80, verse 1. Psalm 80, verse 1 says, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who dwell between the cherubim, shine forth. You who dwell between the cherubim shine forth. This is a picture of the throne of heaven that Jesus Christ sits on. It's his rightful throne. Praise his holy name. Look at 2 Kings 
chapter 19, verse, well, go over and look at Psalm 99 first, since we're already in the neighborhood, if you will. Look at Psalm 99, turn right, go over to Psalm 99 and verse 1. The sovereignty, the sovereignty of the tabernacle. Psalm 99 verse 1 says, The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He who dwells between the cherubim, let the earth be moved. This is the throne of heaven. He who dwells between the cherubim is a picture of the sovereignty of God. And then look at 2 Kings. Turn to the left and go to 2 Kings, if you will. Look at verse, chapter 19, verse 15. 2 Kings 19, verse 15. This is a prayer prayed by Hezekiah. And by the way, if you're ever in distress and you have an enemy knocking at your door, you're to get out his prayer from 2 Kings 19, Hezekiah's prayer, and model your prayer after it. But look at this, 2 Kings 19, we'll look at verse 15. In his affirmation of praise and directing his prayer to the sovereign God of it all, he says, Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, what? The one who dwells between the cherubim. You are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms, the earth, you have made heaven and earth. This is the throne of heaven, a picture of it here. The sovereignty. Can I say this to you? If God does not take the initiative to convict someone of their sin and of the identity of the Savior that He sent to satisfy the righteous demands of God's law in order to make the unrighteous righteous and give that person, individual, the gift of repentance granted by God, not only to repent of their sins, but to believe in the one, the sinless one, who came to take their place, no one gets saved. God is not a God who reacts to what we did in the Garden of Eden. God doesn't react to anything. God only acts. And it was a part of God's sovereign plan from the beginning. It was God's sovereign plan from the beginning to reach and redeem us through the gift of His Son before everyone, any one of us were ever born. Amen? So it's God who takes the initiative. It's God who acts. Gone away with the theology. We have to cast aside any kind of theology that would say that men seek God. That is not true. The Bible is abundantly clear that God seeks man. The Bible says clearly in the Scriptures that no one seeks God. No, not one. The Bible says that God is in none of the thoughts of the wicked. The Bible says that no one seeks God, not now, not then, not ever. God seeks man. As a matter of fact, as soon as you came out of the womb, and as soon as I came out of the womb, we were on the fastest trek that we could ever be on away from Him. We've not been going toward Him. We've been running away from Him. The reason that's so important is that we've humanized salvation. We've almost made it an exercise of cooperative activity between us and God. That God and I worked out my salvation. No, sir. God worked out my salvation. God initiated it. God gave me the faith to believe. God sustains me in it. And God will see me through. Amen? Hallelujah. 
So we see the sovereignty. This is a throne. And aren't you grateful that the throne of the universe for a repentant man or woman or boy or girl is called a throne of mercy and not judgment? If it were a throne of judgment, if it were a throne of judgment, we'd all be in trouble. Every last one of us. But hallelujah to His name. It's a throne of mercy. And as we look at the dimensions of it, it says it's pure gold, which pictures his deity. It also pictures his virgin birth. Here we are on the eve of Christmas. Jesus had to be born of a virgin. Otherwise, he would have been born into the lineage of sin. Everyone, everyone of us were at the Garden of Eden in the loins of Adam when he sinned. The entire human race was cursed because we were in his loins at the time. Everyone who came from the seed of Adam was born into a curse. We sinned because we were born into sin. The Bible says, David said, that we were conceived in iniquity in our mother's womb. If Jesus is going to come in and He's going to take on humanity, and He did, if Jesus is God and He's going to intervene and be the Redeemer of mankind, if He's the one who's going to satisfy the righteous requirements of the law and die in our place, He's got to come, He's got to become a man, but He cannot be born of the lineage of Adam. He had to be born of a virgin. He was born of God. Hallelujah. Pure gold. And you know what? It was beaten gold too. Curious Scripture. And it's always been an amazing Scripture to me. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, that Jesus, though He were a son, learned obedience through the things in which He suffered. And the Bible says that He was made of beaten gold. He was beaten and scourged before He was ever put on the cross and spit upon. And by His stripes we are healed. And Jesus was beaten and it's the beaten gold. It speaks of a suffering Savior. It speaks of a sovereign Savior. It speaks of a glorious Savior. It speaks of deity. But it also speaks of the fact that the Word became flesh and Jesus Christ rather than looking at our suffering and our sin and our pain from a far, far distance and saying, gee, I don't know how to sympathize with that because I'm perfect and holy, came down here and became a man and swallowed it on our behalf. Hallelujah to His name. So it's made of beaten gold. And you know what? The cherubim rest on it. And guess what else? The Bible says that underneath it, in the, in the Ark of the Covenant, is a crown. It means like crown molding. You remember that? We talked about that? That underneath, in the Ark of the Covenant, there's a crown. It's like a rim around it. And guess where that lid rests? The lid of the mercy seat rests on the crown. Hallelujah. 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 Let me tell you something right now. Jesus Christ is God. He is the God of it all. He's the creator God of the universe. He wasn't born of a virgin. He was begotten. But He was introduced into the human race. But that's not when He began. He's the God of eternity past. He's the God of eternity present. He's the God of eternity future. And one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Listen, what we believe about the cross rests upon the fact of the crown of the one who occupied it. Hallelujah. He took off His crown in heaven and then came down here and the Father put on a crown of thorns representing the curse that 
God said would be upon our sin in the Garden of Eden that cursed is the ground you walk on and God laid the wreath of thorns on His head so that you and I could one day pick up a crown and be coronated with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords because we're good people and God just happens to be fond of us and we really do deserve it because after all the good has outweighed the bad. No, because God just flat loves and beyond that I can't give you an explanation. Amen. Isn't He a great God? Everywhere the dimensions are given in the tabernacle, it's symbolic. Some of them we've talked about. Some of them, I don't know what the symbolism is. But let me tell you this. Everywhere that there's not a division, a dimension given, then we can infer from that that whatever is not given means it's boundless. And guess what? The thickness of the mercy seat is not disclosed in the tabernacle dimensions. Which means that His mercy is what? Boundless. There's no end to it. Hallelujah. Amen. We don't get up in heaven and be there for a billion years and God go, oops, my mercy just ran out. You're in trouble. No. Let's see what the Bible says about that. It's boundless. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Can I say this to you? Don't ever say this. And if you ever said it, I'm not being ugly toward you, but don't ever say this. Have you ever heard this? Somebody say, well, you know what? Here's the deal. If you got something going on in your life, don't count on me to sympathize with it because I'm not mercy. Mercy is not my spiritual gift. I'm just not a mercy. I'm not a mercy. You know, you're, you're, you know what you're confessing when you say that? I'm not even remotely like God. I'm not even remotely like God. Let me tell you something right now. I understand. I understand a little bit of the, of the reasoning behind that. But let me tell you this. You and I better be grateful this morning, prostrate before a holy God, that God's full of mercy. Amen? He lends a sympathetic ear to a repentant heart, and I'm grateful He does, because I'm the beneficiary of that. Anybody else in here like that? Amen. Amen. It's boundless. Let's look at what the Bible says about that. Turn with me, if you will. Psalm 32.10. This is just a small sampling. There's a bunch of others. This sovereign God is a merciful God. It was beaten by pure gold, meaning that His suffering makes Him identify as our high priest with our suffering. He came down here and got involved and got in the loop, took upon our sin. And the thickness of the mercy seat has no dimensions. And we can infer from that 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 means it's because it's boundless. Look at Psalm 32.10. What does it say? Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. You know what? You know what might be a good thing to get up in the morning, or Monday morning? Joseph's got to go back to work after a week and a half. And I told him, I'm going to pray for you, brother. You've got to go back to work. To get up in the morning and say, you know what? As a child of God today, mercy surrounds me. I like that thought, don't you? Mercy surrounds me today. It's all over me. I, I'm, it's on me like my skin. I am a beneficiary of the mercy of a merciful, limitless God through the death and burial and resurrection of His blessed Son. Hallelujah. Amen. Look what it says. Look at Psalm 136.1. Look at Psalm 136.1. Over and over again in Psalm 136, the psalmist declares that the mercy of the Lord 
endures forever. Look at Psalm 136.1. Again, this is just a small sampling. We're not even coming close to doing this justice. Well, Psalm 136.1 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy, what? Endures forever. It knows no limit. Let me ask you this. Why are we so quick toward others to limit ours? Just a question. Look at Psalm 103.11. 103.11. You have to backtrack a little bit. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm this way. I get excited about these verses and just get on going. Psalm 103, verse 11. Miss Madge was just telling me just then about a, a video that she's got produced by Louis Giglio about... Uh, I think that's how you say his name, and it's about the uh, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord, and it goes into all the facts that we know about just the ridiculous vastness of God's creation, you know, and and, and it gives us a greater appreciation. And Chad and I were talking about a video that you guys were watching not too long ago about the same thing, and it's just they just give up on how big it is. It's unbelievable. It's unfathomable how big it is. Look what, and in, in, in light of that, look what this verse says. I thought about this when I was. I was studying for this sermon. Look at this. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His mercy to those who fear Him. Hey, so, hey listen. The next time you get a video out like that and you hear somebody start declaring about the size of the cosmos, view it in light of this. That's God communicating to us how big His mercy is toward you. Isn't that wonderful? Listen, you know what? You know what? Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And we are to be the most joyful people on planet earth. Because part of the Christian life and growing as a believer is to grow in your understanding of the difference between what you deserve from God and what you're getting from God. And the longer you walk as a Christian, as a spirit-filled man of God or woman of God, and you study the Scriptures, that, that distance doesn't get bigger, but in your understanding it does, and your appreciation for having been redeemed will grow daily. One of the problems we have in the body of Christ is we've gotten saved, and at the same time we've gotten over it. Don't ever get over it. Don't ever get over the fact that what God, the links that God did to reach and redeem you and I, He is mercy. So the next time you look up at the heavens and think about all the ridiculous things they say about it, and the light year stuff and all of that, I don't know enough of that. I know enough of that to be dangerous. And get to thinking about that, think about this. One of the things that God did in making it that way was to communicate to me and to you how great is His mercy toward those who come in the name of His Son. Hallelujah. It's a mercy seat. It's not a seat of judgment. It's a mercy seat. Amen. Oh my goodness. Look at the sovereignty. It's a throne. It's a seat of mercy for the repentant. For the unrepentant, it is a seat of judgment. But for the repentant, it's a seat of mercy. That's the sovereignty we see here. Now, I want us to take a look at the... Uh, let's take a look at the satisfaction we see here. The satisfaction. Let's look at 1 John... Chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, and let's look at verses 1 and 2. 1 John chapter 2, 
verses 1 and 2. We're going to come to a, a, a big word that has big meaning. John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. This is my little children. These things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now here's the word, propitiation. That word propitiation simply means satisfied. It means satisfied. It means that God's wrath towards sin and the wicked rebelliousness of sin of which we've all participated in was appeased, it was satisfied in the substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection of His Son. That 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 the wrath that you and I deserve as sinners was taken out on the substitute and that God's fully satisfied and His wrath has been fully appeased and there's full satisfaction and that you and I can go free without ever a hint of wrath abiding on us now from this time forth or evermore we have escaped the wrath of God because God is fully satisfied in His substitute. Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. As a matter of fact, the word propitiation there could be the word, it could be translated the word mercy seat. He might as well have said, and he could say it, we and he himself is the mercy seat for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. He's the mercy seat. There's where God's righteous judgment was satisfied, right there. And it's complete. It's total. It's done. It's finished. God's not angry anymore. He's not wrathful anymore toward the repentant because He loves you and mercy triumphs over judgment. Hallelujah. Amen. Look at uh, 1 John 4.10. You'll see it again here. 1 John 4.10. 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He sent His Son to be the mercy seat for our sins. He sent His Son to satisfy the righteous demands of a holy God through the blood that was shed on Calvary. He is our propitiation. He satisfied. He made it right. Praise His name. Look at Romans chapter 3. You all are very familiar with this. I'm sure some of you. Romans chapter 3. We're going to look at verse 25. Paul talking about the doctrine of justification. And look at verse 25. Jesus Christ. We're justified through Him. The redemption through His blood shed on Calvary. And look what it says. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed in whom God set forth. This is why we're talking about from God's perspective it starts with the mercy seat. Everything that, everything that we've realized 
The whole journey we've been on from the brazen altar to the brazen labor to the inside the most holy place to the table of showbread to the lampstand to the altar of incense all the way into the Ark of the Covenant. Every last bit of that flows from and is possible from what God did through what we see in His mercy seat. God set forth His Son. God set forth His Son. Not an angry Roman mob. Not religious Jewish people. God set forth His Son to be a propitiation. He is the one who's just and the justifier of those who have faith in His Son. It's God who took the initiative. It's God who carried it out. It's God who declares He's fully satisfied. It's God. It's not you. It's not me. To God be the glory. Great things He has done. Praise His wonderful name. God set forth His Son. And He's satisfied. We've seen the sovereignty. We've seen the satisfaction. Praise His holy name. I want you to look at Luke 18. Maybe this might give you a different perspective on Luke 18 when you read it. Look at Luke 18. You remember the story. <laughs> we have the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You remember that? Have you all read that story, most of you? You know, just summarizing, we've got a Pharisee standing up front. You know, most Christians can strut sitting down. And he's strutting, you know. Now, he's not a believer. This is a religious guy. And he's talking about his track record, his credentials that he thinks God should be impressed with. And he's pouts them off. God, you've got to be proud of me. Surely you've got to be proud of me. Here's why. Here's why I suggest you should be proud of me. And then we got a guy in the back and he's beating his breast and can't hardly look up. But he's way at the back of the temple because he doesn't even feel like he belongs there. And he cries out and says, God, be what? Merciful to me, a sinner. Now look at that word. I want you to look at it right here. You might want to underline that and put this word beside it. It says in verse 13, And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That word merciful right there means propitious. It comes from the word from which we get propitious. He said, God, be propitious toward me. God, be mercy seat to me. God, be appeased through the blood of your Son and accept His substitutionary death as my only hope for receiving your mercy. And if you, are, if you will receive it, I expect to get your mercy, but that's my only claim. I don't have another. Be propitious to me. That's what he was saying right there. Be propitious to me. We see his sovereignty. We see his sanctification. And oh my goodness. Look at John chapter 16. Verses 7 and 8. Those of you who are going with us through our Roman study have encountered this. Let's look at it here. John 16 verses 7 and 8. We're going to look at the sequence. You recall, and Spencer, we picked this slide here of the picture of the mercy seat rather than just a picture of it himself and nothing around it to highlight and emphasize this very thing. What hovers above the mercy seat? The glory of God. The presence of God. He said, I'll meet with you here. God comes down. And he meets with them. And of course that doesn't even come close to doing justice to it. But it represents all that light over the mercy seat. It means that this is where I commune with you. This is where I'll meet with you. This is the only basis upon which there can be communion. And so the presence of God hovers above the mercy seat. You got it? 
So we got the mercy, the presence of God hovering above the mercy seat. He's looking down at the lid on the mercy seat. Praise God, he's not looking at the law. He has two cherubim on each side, and they are guardians of the holiness of God. That's what we see of them in Scripture, dating all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. Because in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, they were positioned on the way to the tree of life to guard anybody from getting there. Because only holy people could take part of the tree of life. And men had fallen. And there was a curse on us. And they were guardians of the way. And they're looking. And the Bible says that angels long to look into these things. And they're looking at that mercy seat. And quite frankly, there's probably just a little bit of a look of perplexity on them. Because they're looking at that and they're scratching their head. And going, how is it, Lord? How is it? How is it that you can make a man like Lindsay Lewis? Or make a man like Ray Quinn? Or make a man like... Uh, any one of you in here, a lady who's a believer, how is it that you could take somebody filthy and dirty like that and clean them up and make them acceptable in your sight because I know you to be holy. I know how serious you are about holiness. You position me at the tree of life to guard anybody from getting in the way of that. If anybody can appreciate the fact that you're a holy God, it's us. And you've set about for us to guard your holiness and protect it and keep anybody from coming close to you who is not holy. And yet you've made these people holy. How did you do that God? You must be a miracle working God. And so they're looking down at the mercy seat, guardians and protectors of the way to God which is a highway of holiness. The, the, the presence of God hovering above the mercy seat. And here's what God says about this. Not in just this place but many others. But look how it's laid out. The sequence. Look at John chapter 16 verses 7 and 8. It says, Nevertheless, Jesus, talking about the Holy Spirit, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send Him to you. And when He comes, when He has come, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Here's how I want you to, in your mind, view this. This is how I want you to encourage you to view it. This inside, we talked about the fact that inside the Ark of the Covenant, which is right here, in there contained the Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod that budded, and a pot of manna that God used to sustain His children through four, uh, forty years of wilderness wandering. Remember that. Now inside there. The most prominent part of the contents is the fact that the tablets of commandments are in there, written by the finger of God. And we talked about the fact that if God looks down, represented by His presence up here, and there's no mediator, and there's no go-between between here and what's inside this ark, the only thing He's going to see is the Ten Commandments. And the only thing that He's going to do is judge us for breaking them. Because the law demands not mercy. You won't find a shred of mercy or allowance for mercy inside the law. Not one. The law demands death. And so the only thing that he would see were there not a lid here would be judgment. But God put a lid on there. And that's not just a lid. It's his throne. It's a merciful act by a merciful God. And it's a forever transaction because it endures forever. And 
Here's what the Holy Spirit convicts us of. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin beneath, because the law shows us to be sinners, and we look at it and we go, I'm in trouble. Righteousness, because Jesus Christ is the only one who righteously fulfilled it. And He comes in between our sin and God's judgment. And God's appeased by the blood that's shed and spread on that mercy seat. You see it? That's the sequence. He said, when the Holy Spirit comes, He will convict you of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. Jesus stepped in between God's righteous judgment and our sin. And He sits on the mercy seat as the only one who could atone for the sin of rebellious sinners like you and me. Praise His holy name. Aren't you glad God put a lid on that thing? And aren't you glad it's not just a lid to temporarily cover it, but it's a throne? And aren't you glad that the throne is eternal? And aren't you glad that the, His mercy endures forever? And aren't you glad He sits there? And aren't you glad beside Him there is no other? And aren't you glad that nobody's ever going to knock Him off? Hallelujah. What a Savior. So we saw the sovereignty. We've seen the satisfaction. We've seen the sequence. And now... We'll close out by the significance. By the significance. I'm not going to ask you to look there unless you want to, but you might want to write this down. It says in Exodus 12, verse 13. Here, the covenant people, the Hebrew children, the Hebrew nation, was about to be delivered for 430 years. Of Egyptian bondage. God's going to deliver them supernaturally. You get over on the other side of their deliverance. They couldn't say, well gee. Um, us and God did this. No. It was a supernatural act of God. Just like your salvation is and so is mine. He's going to supernaturally deliver them. And he tells them to take the blood of a chosen lamb sacrifice it and take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorposts and the lintel of their home. And he says, when you do that and the death angel passes over, I'm going to kill the firstborn of everybody in Egypt, not just the children, and, I mean, not just their children, but their livestock and everything. I'm going to go by and I'm going to kill every one of them. I'm going to judge them. And when I go by, if I see the blood, he says in that verse, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And he looked down, and that was a preview of coming attractions. Because what God did one day was he cut the throat of his son on Calvary. And he spilled out every bit of life-giving blood. And Jesus Christ took one trip to the throne. And on that mercy seat, he spread his precious blood there. And the Lord said, Satisfied. Paid in full. Done. You can go free. Hallelujah. When I see the blood, I'll pass over you. See, your trip, if you're a believer, to judgment is not going to be at the great white throne judgment. It's going to be the judgment seat of Christ. And there you and I will be judged on how we've acted since we've been in the body. Not going to be judged for our sin, but we can judge for our works. But everybody who appears at the judgment seat of Christ is going to be in heaven for eternity.
But there's going to be another judgment. And it's going to be at the great white throne judgment. And picture this. For those who appear at the great white throne judgment, there's no lid. And God's judgment is going to look down upon them without a mediator, without an advocate. He's not going to deal with them propitiously. He's not going to deal with them mercifully. He's going to judge them. And the judgment is going to be eternity in hell. Let me ask you a question. Is anything on the face of this earth more important than the gospel? Is there? Is there a close second? Is anything else make the list even? No. No. You're shaking your head because you're right. No. Nothing. We should be pouring out of compassion and mercy over the ones who have yet repented toward God and put their faith in His Son. Because God's not going to propitiously deal with them. God's not going to mercy seek deal with them. There's no in-between. There's no mediator. There's no go-between. But it need not be that way. They're going to stand on their own. They're going to present their works toward God. Their life toward God. And I don't believe there's going to be one word spoken to decry or to mar His righteous judgment. And he will not, there won't be any technicalities, there won't be any loopholes. See, that's how we do, you know. In, in a modern day court, whatever we can do to, to exploit a technicality or a breach in the law, or maybe this was the way the evidence was obtained and there was something tainted about that, or whatever we can do. Attorneys do everything they can to play little tricks, you know, to put the, to put the prosecution on trial rather than the defendant. None of that will work in heaven. It's an airtight case against all of mankind. It's airtight against you this morning that if you're not. A believer. If you've never repented toward God and put your faith in His Son, you have no go-between. God's not going to mercifully deal with you. Can I say this to you? Why do we try to go to the Bible and create a God that's not found there? The Bible says in Psalm 711, and we talked about this last week, that God is angry at the wicked every day. And His righteousness and His justice are going to be satisfied one way or the other. But yet at the same time, the very people He's angry with, He also is full of love for and grace and mercy and spilt His Son's blood to demonstrate it. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus.